In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you were 12 years or younger and you would like to, please join me up front. You're not the only person. Okay, guys, whenever we do this, we usually use our imaginations, right? Today is going to be no different. So I want you to imagine this. Let's say... We were walking through a jungle somewhere, and all of a sudden we came across a group of people that no one had ever seen before. And as we talked to them, we found out that there was a lot of things they had never heard of. One of the things these people had never heard of was the beach. How many of you have heard of the beach? Everybody? Good. You're not in the jungle. This is good. This is a good start. How many of you have ever been to the beach? Good, everybody, so we all know what the beach is. What are some things you see at the beach? Water, Water. that's pivotal. Sand, also. Seashells, crabs. Jellyfish. Jellyfish. Sharks. Sharks. Whales. Whales. Now we're in the ocean. Fish. Fish, right? This is all stuff that we see at the beach. But these people had never heard of the sand or the ocean or waves or seagulls or seashells or anything else that was associated with the beach. And we think that the beach is so awesome, we wanted to help them understand what the beach was like. So we attempt to image for them as closely as we can all of the wonderful things about the beach. So what are some things we could do to help them? How would we help people in the jungle know what the beach is like? Maybe there's trash and we could pick up some. That is it's possible. Yeah? We could tell them. But if they don't know what sand is like and we tell them about sand, they might not understand. So here's what we do. We're going to take a couple of the people. We're going to have them close their eyes and sit down in a sandbox that we brought. You're right. And once they're seated, we're going to play a recording of the sounds of the beach. And then once we... Once we do that, we're going to put like a heat lamp over their head and pretend like it's the sun. And ever so often as they sit there with their eyes closed, I'm going to shoot them in the face with some water, right? And that'll be like the ocean surf. And as we do all of this, I'm going to tell them to dig their toes in and relax. Would that be a good way to kind of simulate the beach? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we're in the jungle, it's the best we got, right? Was our simulation of the beach perfect, though? No, it was not. You said a a very emphatic no. You're right. It is possible that someone could hate the simulation and still like the real beach because our simulation wasn't perfect, right? But let's say we could make the simulation perfect in every way. If our simulation was perfect and someone said they hated it, would they like the real beach? No. Why not? Why wouldn't they like the real beach? Right, because the simulation was perfect, and if they didn't like it, then they wouldn't like the real beach either, right? Did you listen to today's gospel text? Because believe it or not, something like that is happening in John chapter 14. What I want you to do when you go back to your chairs is I want you to listen for what that is, okay? Can you do that? Good. Thanks, guys. So this morning, I want to take these 
sharp words of Jesus and put them into context. So let's set the stage by going back just a little bit to John chapter 10. No need to flip around. I'm going to be moving a lot. In John chapter 10, Jesus uses a parable about being a shepherd. In verse 7, Jesus claims that he's the door by which the sheep enter. And then in verse 11, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and that he's calling to his sheep. And in both cases, Jesus is claiming ownership, ownership of both the sheep and of his position as their shepherd. But then in verse 29, Jesus says something unexpected. He explains why the sheep are his and why he calls himself their shepherd. John 10, verse 29 says this. It reads, My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. When Jesus says, I and the father are one, he isn't claiming to have just some intellectual knowledge of the father. Jesus is claiming an intimate knowledge of the Father. He's telling that what what belongs to the Father also belongs to Him. And that is true because He and the Father are united to one another. And what belongs to one belongs to the other as well. And as you might expect, those claims absolutely enraged the Jews. You see, the Jews understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. They understood that He was claiming a special knowledge of the Father, a knowledge that only the Son of the Father would have. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be the eternal son of the Father. And this is why the Jews accuse him of blasphemy. This is why in verse 31, the Jews pick up rocks and they seek to kill him. Because the claim of Jesus in John 10 was to claim an equality with God. And as we move into chapter 11, Jesus gives everyone a really good reason to believe those words. In John 11, Jesus stands outside of the tomb of his friend Lazarus and raises him from the dead. Right before he calls out to Lazarus in the tomb, Jesus makes another interesting claim. John 11, verse 25, Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die, yet shall he live. Now guys, this isn't how rabbis usually teach. A normal rabbi would say something like, Guys, just follow these rules and do these things, and you're going to have a great life. And if you don't follow these rules, then your life's going to be terrible. That's how a first century Jewish rabbi would teach. But there was no teacher in all of Israel that would say, hey man, listen, if you die, don't sweat it. I'm just going to bring you back to life. Nobody says that. But that's exactly what Jesus says. And as Lazarus walks out of the tomb, the Pharisees see that the words of Jesus are backed up with actions. The outrageous claims made by Jesus in John 10 that he and the Father are one are vindicated as Jesus shows his authority over death itself. And after this, many people believed in Jesus. They followed him, but the Pharisees, they were terrified. They were terrified because Jesus was a legitimate threat to their positions, a threat to their rule. And so the Pharisees set out, sent out word throughout the land. They said that if anyone sees this Jesus, come and tell us so we can arrest him. Their plan wasn't to follow Jesus. Their plan was to shut him up for good. Their plan was to kill Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this death threat? We get our answer in John chapter 12. Jesus, a man that is marked for death, enters Jerusalem through the eastern gate, riding on a donkey to the shouts of people who proclaim him as Israel's king. Whatever else you think about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, it's the opposite of hiding. At the very end of chapter 12, Jesus tells the people this in verse 49. He says this, 
For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see, Jesus is clarifying something from all of his detractors. If anyone has a problem with Jesus, if anyone doesn't like something that he's saying or doing, then your problem isn't with Jesus. Your problem's with the Father. Why? Because Jesus only says what the Father is saying. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. The words and actions of Jesus are perfectly showing the Father to us. And that idea doesn't come about this late in John. It started way back in John 1. Remember this? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known to us. Jesus is the eternal Son of the Father. He takes on flesh and he makes himself visible to us. And what the Son shows us is the image of the invisible Father. So when you look at Jesus, you're seeing a perfect image of the Father. What you hear from Jesus are the perfect words of the Father. And as we move into chapter 13, Jesus puts the heart of the Father on full display. In John 13, verse 4, we see that Jesus, the only one who does what he sees the Father doing, is washing feet. And yeah, these are dirty, smelly fishermen feet, but, and that's bad enough. But you know what makes this even worse? Jesus is washing the very feet of the people who are about to betray him. Jesus is loving and serving the very people who are about to forsake him. Jesus is serving the very ones who rebel against him and then deny they ever knew him. And that unbelievably deep love shown by Jesus in that moment is the heart of the Father for a fallen and rebellious creation. And so the progression seems something like this. In John 10, Jesus claims that he and the Father are one. In John 11, he vindicates those claims by raising Lazarus from the dead. In John 12, Jesus claims that if you see him, you see the Father, that he's the visible image of the invisible God. And then in John 13, Jesus visibly shows the heart of the Father to us, not only by washing their feet, but by loving them with full knowledge of their betrayal to come. Jesus shows us that the love the Father has for us is not predicated on our actions. The disciples weren't earning God's love. No, God loved them so much that he washed their feet even as they planned to betray him. That is the heart of the Father shown to us in the Son. And as we move into chapter 14 of John, all the signs that have been going on seem to converge in one iconic statement. John 14, verse 6, says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> now, there's many who abhor this verse. There are many who see it as the height of presumption and hubris. Some say that it's hateful to assert that the Father can only be accessed through Jesus. But guys, whatever else this statement is, it isn't a statement of arrogance. It isn't a statement that's based in hatred. No, this is a statement that finds its basis in everything we've read so far. This statement is rooted in the Son's intimate knowledge of the Father. This is a statement that's based in the Son's perfect imaging of the Father. Remember the children's sermon about the beach 
If a person who had never seen or heard of a beach felt and heard the simulation that I described, they would have a fairly accurate understanding of the beach, right? My simulation of the beach wasn't perfect, but it gives us a good enough picture. So if that person who was sitting in the sandbox told us that they hated every bit of it, they probably wouldn't enjoy the real beach, right? But it is possible, it is possible that someone could hate my simulation and yet love the real beach. Why? Because my imaging of the beach was imperfect. The sun is much more than a heat lamp. The mist from the bottle I held is no replacement for the ocean surf. My simulation was close, but my simulation wasn't the real thing. And that's the difference between my attempt to image the beach and Jesus' imaging of the Father. My attempt to simulate the beach was approximate. Jesus' attempt to image the Father is perfect. It is not possible for someone to dislike Jesus and yet love his Father because Jesus perfectly shows the Father to us. And so if you reject Jesus, if you hate Jesus, by necessity you reject his Father as well. So when someone says that Jesus being the only way to God is too narrow or too restrictive, that it sounds archaic and hateful, and you really should have a much more inclusive view of other religions, I want you to know that none of that is true. Jesus doesn't proclaim himself as the only way to God out of pride or arrogance. Jesus doesn't claim an intimate knowledge of the Father so that he can be mean to other religions. No, Jesus' statements are rooted in the reality of his sonship. He is the Son of the Father, and by the Spirit, he perfectly reveals the Father to us. And guys, that's not just semantics or seminary language. That is the language of salvation itself. The world that was made for God and by God has rebelled against God and is now fallen and broken. It's in a state of disunion with God. So what does God do? How does God reunite himself to this fallen world? How does God restore everything that was broken in the fall? In a manger in Bethlehem, Jesus, the one who perfectly images the Father to us, was born by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. In the person of Christ, all three persons of the Trinity are being made known to a lost and broken world. Christ didn't come alone. He came by the Spirit. Christ doesn't speak on his own. He speaks everything he hears from the Father. And this is so because he is the Father. He is in the Father and the Father is in him. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are indivisible. They are eternally united to one another. And it's the prerogative of all three persons to participate in the redemption of the world. And that redemption is accomplished by inviting you into the union they share with one another. By the Spirit, you are offered the resurrected life of the Son. And in receiving it, you were wed to Jesus. You become the bride of the Son. And by being wed to the Son, you become sons and daughters of his Father and heirs of his eternal kingdom. And yes, it is absolutely true there is no other way into the family of God. It is absolutely true there is no other way to be a child of the Father except by being a bride to his Son. It is absolutely true that if you reject the Son, you cannot call his Father yours. And this is why the words of Jesus are sharp. And yes, they are every bit as exclusive as they seem. 
But this is also why those same words are absolutely beautiful. There is only one person in all human history that claims to be the son of the father and then backs those words up with undeniable actions. There is only one person in the entire history of the world that offers you communion with God by extending their hand in marriage, by offering you an invitation to join the family of their father. There is only one who does that. His name is Jesus. He is the Son of the Father, and yes, no man can come unto his Father unless they do so by him. Amen.